It's time to break the silence and open up the dialogue around the topics of miscarriage and baby loss. No more shame. No more taboo. Let's ditch it for the sake of our children. The ones who are, the ones who will come. And in memory of the ones who never came to be. This is the Worst Girl Gang Ever podcast. Good afternoon. Good evening. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. I don't know. I don't even know what hello? time it's going to be coming Maybe out. Maybe start with hello. Hello. Is it me you're looking for? See, not much has changed. New series, same old us. We are so lucky to be joined at the Worst Girl Gang Ever to by Jodie Day. Thank you so much for coming, Jodie. I'm sorry it's been a bit chaotic with our new systems and cameras and microphones and stuff, but it's lovely to have you here. It's really lovely to be with you. And as a sister entrepreneur, I feel right at home. Oh, good. <laughs> Jolly good. We always usually say welcome to the studio, but actually, this is, although it is still virtual and online, this is an actual studio. So I feel like it's called a recording studio. Yeah. Yeah. It's very yeah. posh. I'm, I feel very honored. It's even got a logo on this studio. It's very, very fancy pants. Very fancy. Well, we are so pleased to have you because. Um, well, we'll talk a little bit about about what you do and why you do it. But um, we have our community. Um, we have a large number of people in our community who are coming to the end of their trying to conceive journeys. And mm. they are battling with when to stop, how to stop, if to stop, and, um, and then moving on living yeah. life afterwards whether that be um some some of them will already have a child but will be stopping their trying to conceive journey and some people will be Mm. moving on in life childless but not by choice um so Mm. we we're really excited to have you on to to chat about your experiences and all of the things that you do for for these people Mm. thank you so much lauren and i just want to say to anyone listening who's who's in that boat um it, this is a really tough moment. And I think also leaving or considering leaving the support network that has felt like your only safe place in the world for a long time is also another loss. Um, mm. And it's, it's, and it's really hard because there can be a sense I know from talking to members over the years that actually when the people that you've been on a TTC journey with, some of them do go on to have a baby. You know, it can be really hard to manage all the conflicting feelings of being left out by that, happy for them, sad for yourself, seeing them have the experiences you longed for, and also realizing that what brought you together isn't really there anymore. And it's mm. it's another kind of disenfranchised grief because there are these fantasies around female friendships that they can survive anything. And my experience is that they not to be too dramatic, but they often don't survive childlessness in, in the same way. Um, they, they really, sometimes they can transform, but often they come to a natural and painful end. And we don't talk about that enough. I was just going to say, I think that there, um, one of the major problems as well in this whole decision mm. to stop trying is the fact that there is so much toxic positivity within the baby loss community of keep going yeah. and your rainbow's just around the corner. And actually, even if physically you might be able to keep going, you might be able to go for another round of IVF, you might be able to feel physically you could withstand another loss, then 
there's so much more to that decision than just your physical ability, isn't there? Because there's your financial um, situation. There's your um, most important, in my opinion, is your mental, you know, your emotional and mental capabilities to 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 live that that life. And it's such a difficult decision, and it's so often minimised by people saying, "Oh, keep going, keep going." Absolutely, but that keep going toxic positivity narrative is also a very natural thing that people do because what we're talking about is is often giving up on on the chance of having a child at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we are we are empathic beings, humans. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether we're um, quote unquote good at it or not, we mm-hmm. feel each other's feelings. And what we what we often what the other person often feels in that moment, even if it's not named, is grief. They feel the grief that we're contemplating, and they don't want to feel it. And the yeah. best way to avoid that is to shut the conversation down with "Don't give up." And what that actually means is don't give up because I couldn't bear you giving up and how I would have to feel if you gave up. Yeah, but none no, of this is actually articulated. And the, person, and the person who's actually trying to talk about something incredibly painful knows once again, okay, this is someone I can't talk to this about. And mm. Bex, to your point about you know, it not being about necessarily a physical reason why you can't continue <clears throat> over the years, I've, I haven't had fertility treatments myself. I had, did have a, you know, I was infertile. That's why I don't have children. But the, um, the reasons that people give up, you know, I've heard over the years of giving up treatment are usually that they have gone on until they can go on no longer. Mm. And that's the only way they seem to be able to deal with the guilt of not trying hard enough. And that's really, really common as well. I should have tried this. I should have done that. And usually they either run out of money, health, mental or physical, relationships change. You know, it's like they usually go until they meet an immovable object. And often, as you say, that immovable object is their mental and physical well-being. Mm. Um, and, mm. the, you know, it, it's, it's in my book, Living the Life Unexpected, and it's, you know, it's been peer-reviewed by academics, the study that I quoted, that um, 50% of women who have experienced fertility treatments have PTSD. Now, that is higher than combat veterans, higher than combat veterans, and the average in the population, the baseline is 8%. Now, this, you know, so that's regardless of whether you do end up um, with a live birth or not. So Mm. it is an incredibly invasive procedure. And so for people to say to you, you know, just don't give up, they have, a lot of them have no flipping, to use a polite word, idea what they're talking about. I mean, crack on with the spare words, Jodie. We really cannot (laughs) Yeah, and the after and the aftercare, unfortunately, is is so is so inadequate. And often the stuff that is offered is offered in a way that it's not possible to receive at that time. I mean, even going for a counselling appointment at the clinic where you had your treatment, you know, I'm sorry, you you're not able to do that at that point. Mm. You know, you just yeah. want to walk away and like Thelma and Louise and just burn the whole thing up and walk away and never see it again. Unfortunately, that trauma comes with you, and at some point you know, it, you will need to address it. And so yeah. with your own personal experience that you, that you touched on, Jodie, how did mm-hmm. you move forward in your, in your personal journey? Uh, poorly. <laughs> um, and I, interestingly enough, when I look back on it, it, it wasn't until I started writing about my childlessness on a blog called Gateway Women, which started 12 years ago, which became the organisation Gateway Women, 
that I, you know, was writing about at the time I was, I was, you know, been divorced for quite some time. I was single. I was childless. I was in my mid forties. I was dealing with all of the social censure that comes with all of those things simultaneously. And I started meeting through my work, through my blog, and then through the, the Gateway Women online community, women who had had treatment and were talking a lot about infertility. And also there were um, the only books and, and very few blogs that were out there at that time were about women coming to terms with childlessness after failed fertility treatments. There was no one talking about it for any other reason apart from choice. And talking to these women and hearing them talk about infertility, I it took me a while to twig. And this is this is how powerful denial is. I had never thought of myself as infertile. I had never read a book about infertility. I had never joined an infertility support group. I was someone who was going to have a baby. I was trying to conceive. I never labeled myself infertile. That is something I only came to realize later down my journey. Mm. You know, that is how powerful denial is. That, that, you know, denial is the first stage of grief. And it was like, you know, I was trying to conceive for 11 years. You know, I did have um, you know, a couple of little operations. I did everything I could. I was probably at the point of, you know, my ex-husband and I were at the point of considering fertility treatments when our marriage broke down under this, you know, after 16 years. So, you know, under the strain of my infertility um, and uh, uh, his workaholism, which had tipped over um, into addiction, which was actually a mask for um, untreated trauma and mental illness from his childhood. So we were a right pair. You know, I had the matching set, the codependency set that often goes with people living with addicts and alcoholics. So we were in a right old mess by the time I was 38. But I, you know, I didn't, I, I never really understood how, how hugely I'd been impacted by my inability to have a child. And it wasn't until I started processing it by writing about it, by trying to help others, by meeting hundreds and thousands of other women and hearing their stories that I started to see what was, I guess I started to share what I was doing that was helping me. And the mm. two things that helped me most were, were understanding that I was grieving, which I worked out through my psychotherapy training. You know, I was doing, I was doing a, a training on bereavement and I was thinking, this feels very familiar. You know, yeah. and I went home that evening from my training and I sort of mapped out what I, what I was learning about this grief model next to my experience of childlessness. And I was like, oh my God, I'm grieving. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'd been in therapy, I'd seen doctors, I'd read books, I'd done, I'd obviously consulted Dr. Google, you know, at great depth <laughs> about my despair uh, and my inability to sort of pull myself out of it. You know, I'd experienced, a, I, you know, I haven't had an easy life, I've had a lot of crunchy traumatic situations that I've dealt with over my life, including the breakdown of my marriage and my husband, then husband's addictions. So it's like, you know, it's like I hadn't had like a walk in a part life, but I'd always been able to find a way through these things, you know, great researcher, great joiner, you know, I'd find things that would help me and I'd throw myself mm. into them. But this wasn't responding to any of my, any of my techniques, quote unquote. And when I found out I was grieving, I realized that that number one, it meant that there was a name for what I was experiencing. You know, I wasn't kind of going mad because as anyone who has experienced grief, and if you haven't experienced yet, you will, unfortunately. It's part of life. <coughs> I thought I was going a bit mad, so I knew I wasn't. I also knew that grief was a process. that meant that one day I would be out the other side of this. I didn't know how, 
But I became a bit of a grief junkie. I read everything about it I could. Um, I think finding that you know people have been experiencing grief and writing grief from the earliest writings we have in Western civilization gave me a great sense of hope. You know, I'm a I'm I'm a writer, and you know, so much poetry and so much ancient literature is about the human experience of love and grief. It's so such a profound part of what it is to be human. Um, if we love, we will grieve. Mm-hmm. That, that they are completely linked. Mm. And and I think so learning, understanding I was grieving and learning all I could about grief and doing what is called, what Freud called our grief work, which sounds very modern, but it's actually Freud that, that came up with that phrase, learning how I could support myself to carry this burden, you know, not fix it, not get rid of it. How do I live with this whilst it does? Because grief is a process of identity transformation. It is the emotion and psychological experience that allows us to come to terms with living a life where something we thought we couldn't live without is gone. Yeah. It's an irrevocable loss. There is nothing you can do. It's never going to come back. And, but the person that comes out the other end of the grieving process, i.e. the person that can live that life, that is a different version of you. Mm. You know, I, I am completely changed by my childless grief. You know, even though it's probably the worst of it is nearly 20 years behind me now. It's like I am a different person for going through that experience. And I think anyone who is going, who is on an infertility journey, however it ends for you, you will be forever changed by this experience. Yeah. Um, And we don't think about that enough and we don't support ourselves and each other enough. We live in a grief phobic society that can't talk about it and won't let us talk about it. All it wants to talk about is hope. Yeah. And actually, first thing you have to let go of in order to really enter your grief is you have to let go of hope. And we are terrified of that. Don't lose hope. You mustn't lose hope. But actually, it's a, I know it sounds bizarre. It's actually a positive thing. It means you're accepting cognitively, not in your body yet, not in your soul. This isn't going to be. This isn't going to be my path. Other people have a huge problem with that because our whole culture has a huge problem with grief. Mm. So grief is my number one thing that helped me in my journey and finding others. I mean, you know, your work is, has shown that too, that how important it is to find a community of other women, if we're women, who've been through or are going through this, where we can talk without having to censor ourselves without having to think through how the other person is going to respond to our story and therefore how candid we can be, how desperate we can be, how completely sort of untogether we can be. You know, it, it's, you need somewhere where you, can, where you can be yourself without filters because that is so healing. And it is really, really hard to find a space to talk about infertility and childlessness out there without people trying to fix us with solutions or close us down with shame or toxic positivity. So knowledge and other girls, that's what got me through. Mm. And then, of course, your, your writing. When, did your, um, when was your book published? Well, my book was initially published um, as a self-published book in 2013. It was crowdfunded, paid for. All the self-publishing costs were paid for in a crowdfunding campaign, paid for by Gateway Women members. Um, the original cover, which people still really love, 
which is kind of a bit of a sort of a rock chick kind of cover, um, was um, was designed by one of the members. So it was really, really, really a, a kind of community effort. And then um, in 2016, it was published in its first edition um, by Pan, Bluebird Pan Macmillan. And then in 2020, this is the most recent edition that came out at the beginning of 2020, March 2020. This is, again, second edition, completely revised and updated because also the stats and things change. But also I, you know, my understanding and knowledge change. So the second and third editions include a lot of case studies and a lot of quotes from other people's stories and also has a more international focus. Um, the first book was quite British and features also more nuances around the experience of grieving, um, you know, grieving as a woman of colour, grieving as a single woman, grieving as a couple, grieving as a woman of faith, grieving, grieving as a, um, you know, lesbian, queer or bisexual woman. There are lots of different kind of len intersectional lenses that, are, that can be part of our grieving journey that make it a slightly different experience. And I try to speak to as many of those as I can. And I think the journey, particularly for, for single women, can be incredibly challenging um, because for, for many, many reasons. But also, as I experienced, you know, in my 40s, that sense of being treated like a failure as a woman for not being partnered or having a child can be particularly brutal. Um, and so there's almost like a double whammy of, of shame and social othering to be worked through to, to, to make peace with your life and to realize, actually, I may be childless. I may be single. There's nothing wrong with me. I haven't done anything wrong. I am nothing wrong. You know, as I say, you know, you were born childless, single and worthy. You remain worthy. You know, you do not have to have a partner or a child to prove your womanhood to the rest of society. Um, but it's, it's challenging. You know, you have to really develop such a, a deep sense of self uh, and of self-worth to deal with the daily hits to your self-esteem that come at you from everywhere if you don't fit this heteronormative, pre pre patriarchal, pronatalist pattern of being partnered with a man and having a child. It's like, that's the, it's just, it's so strange because, you know, we live in such a liberated um, uh, society, you know, probably the best it's ever been to be, you know, to be a woman. And yet we're still running these really, really ancient restrictive patterns um, and as someone a little bit older than, than both of you, you know, I was born in the 60s. So my childhood years were the 70s. You know, second wave feminism was really starting to impact British society and American society. And our mums were so keen for us to have a different life to them, you know, to make the most of what was there for us that hadn't been there for them. And they had no, I mean, the backlash that started in the 80s, really, that, um, that, <laughs> You know, first of all, it was that women needed to have it all. So you needed to have this great career and you needed to have children. And now it's like, if you don't have children, you've somehow failed because now every woman has to have a job. It's not like an option anymore. <laughs> it's not like, yeah. oh, I, think I'll, I think I'll get a job. It's like, no, you know, that's, everyone's going to have to do that. But there's more pressure now, I think, on women to fit a template than there was when I was growing up. When I was growing up, being pregnant and having kids was not cool. You know, and if a pop star or a film star got pregnant, they had to disappear out of sight, you know, <laughs> and now, and now, you know, you look at sort of, you know, Beyonce, when she was pregnant, she probably broke the internet with those pregnancy photos. 
it's now, and I'm sorry, but even Z-list celebrities now can be on the front cover of magazines just for being, you know, just for having a baby bump. It's like become like this cool thing. It's like, I'm sorry, Kate Bush, we never saw her again. Pop stars, when they had, you know, things like that, they just disappeared from sight. They could appear several years later, you know, but there would be no photographs of their children. It was not, it was not part of their career progression to be mothers. So I think social media has really, really changed, but also the combination of pronatalism plus um, capitalism, you know, mother, mothering and motherhood and children becoming a huge market segment that it it kind of wasn't when I was growing up in the seventies. I mean, everyone had a hand-me-down pram. You know, it was, there was not this kind of urge that it was a big thing to consume around. And there were no identities around motherhood apart from, you know, maybe there was a club that was attached to mother care. <laughs> it, was like, yeah. it, it, was, it was so much more private. And I feel motherhood and pregnancy has become public. And yeah. that hasn't been helpful in some ways. It hasn't. And I realise that it hasn't been helpful, but in other ways, it has been incredibly helpful for those yeah. lucky enough to be able to, because it's no longer this kind of, you have to leave whatever you do. You can't have, you, you have to choose one thing or another. So in some ways it is very much a step forwards in, in the way we live, but obviously that puts a magnifying glass on those yeah. who are not having children. And that is so painful, it must be so painful, but there must be, there must be another way, you know, because this is, I feel like this is all, as mm. you were saying, Jodie, this is all such a new thing and it's developing, isn't yes. it? And all of these things are developing. So there must be a developmental something further along that has a, a room for everyone to explore who they are, what they are, what they can do, what they want to do, what they don't want to do within mm. a safety, the safety of a platform that is accepting and inclusive of, of everyone. And I think it was really interesting what you said earlier about your book um giving everyone a voice giving everyone a sort of a different lens from because mm. they're experiencing the same thing but with a different b- background a different mm. ethnicity a different religious mm. point of view mm-hmm. and it's so important to remember that all these massive massive topics like what we talk about like baby mm. loss like infertility they're not just one size fits all are they they are no so personal and two people can experience the exact same thing but have Mm. a completely different reaction because of who they are and I think that step one we talked to you talked a lot about acceptance and accepting that's who you are and accepting this is your way and I think that as a society we need to accept that these big big things these big life experiences Mm. in a woman's life in a couple's life in a single person's life are absolutely yeah. huge and need to be taken so seriously in order for us as women, as couples, as men, to be able mm. to move forward and be more content and and accepting of what our life is going to look like. And I think it's so important to carry on banging this drum and saying, just because you are not the same as so-and-so next door down the road does not mean that you are less, does not mean that your life is not as important does not mean that you do not have an equal importance and roots within this same planet as we do or as they do. And it's just that Mm. constant drive for awareness that we are all same, but different. It's a, it's a big project. I mean, social change usually happens 
usually happens in that there's 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 sort of there's a big swing away from the way things were. So we go from usually from the status quo sort of to its opposite, to its antithesis. And then and then the kind of the pendulum the change sort of swings back to the center. And that center is a new center. You see what I mean? So Ooh. it's like it, it's moved slightly. It's gone almost like gone too far, quote unquote. And then it comes back to a center, but it's a new center. I think we are actually in a social moment where people are beginning to realize the harms of social media, the harms of a single story, the harms of pronatalism and things like that. And, you know, my work with, I'm an advisor at the New Legacy Institute, which is uh, the world's only policy institute dedicated to the global impact of pronatalism. And it really brings a social justice lens to, to the issues of inequalities that people without children face. But it's this sense that even 10 years ago, I wouldn't have even had the language to just frame that sentence because mm. we hadn't started having those kinds of thoughts. And just as we've seen, um, you know, with the gay liberation movement and with the women's liberation movement from, you know, from the sort of 60s and 70s onwards, it, it takes a lot of work to change a social norm. And also usually society is usually about a generation behind understanding that change. Mm. And what I'm really seeing with, um, with the younger members of the Gateway Women community, um, you know, which is now called the Lighthouse Women community, is that, um, and also with my, you know, my nieces, you know, my, which I'm, and I'm very fond of, you know, those Gen Z, those Gen, the Gen Z, I see how different they are to me. And that's the generation that my children would have been had I been able to have them. And they are so much less shame. You know, they're so much harder to shame. They're much more shame resilient. They're much more collaborative and open and things like that. And I can really see that the work that, I've, that I and my generation have been doing to change the narrative is, feels very natural to them in a way that, you know, women in their, their 50s and 60s are often still feel very silenced and unable to, you know, unable to talk about this stuff. They're just like, they're right there. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the work takes time. I think we are starting to see that, Bex. I think that pendulum is starting to shift. We're starting to see that maybe being absolutely open about everything on social media has its benefits, but also has its negatives. I think maybe we're all, it's, it's such a powerful tool um, the, the internet in a way, you know, what it's made possible has made my work possible, made your work possible. It's made all of the connection and healing that, that we're all engaged in possible in a way that it wouldn't, wouldn't have been before. Um, so it's about, it's about a mindful balance and what you said about that intersectional lens and how important that is, you know, for those of us who are fortunate to become mothers, you know, every mother is different. You know, they don't just get on with and agree with everything every mother does just because, Mm. you know, they've had a baby. And every person who is trying to conceive, every person who's on a fertility journey, every person who is childless, yes, we we share that experience, but each of our versions of that experience is unique and filtered through the lenses of our life circumstances and experiences too. So it's like, how do we have a community and also respect individuality? I think as a culture, that's something we're struggling with right now. We haven't completely worked it out, but I have faith and hope that we will get there. Yeah, it, you definitely, you can feel that the older pendulum is swinging and, and I think it mm. takes a lot of work, like you say, but also the more people that are going through it, the more society sees this in people around them, people they love. and 
are more likely to mm. be more mindful, more respectful. Um, there is it. Is it one in five women are childless now? Well, it's. I mean, for my cohort, the nineteen sixties cohort, it's one in four. Okay. Um, it's currently one in five. I think for those born in the nineteen seventies, um, it will go back to it will be one in four again. And I think we could possibly. Um, with the way statistics, uh, the latest statistics from the ONS last year showed that 50% of women aged 30 had not yet had a child, which is the highest number it's ever been. Mm. Now, when you consider that, you know, the average age of the mother at first birth in the UK is around 30, that, that, that age um, often predicts what, how many children a woman will go on to have, but also increases the chance that she won't go on to have children. So I think that it is not unlikely that we could be heading towards the one in three that we already see in Japan, um, in, in the UK and in the USA over the next 15 to 20 years. And I think we also need to say that that's just a hard data number. Many of those women will also be child-free by choice. And that's a really hard bit of um, qualitative data to get into the quantitative numbers. You know, no one's asking those questions. They're not asking them on the censuses and things like that. So it's, it's very hard to know. The most recent data I have on that is from about 2014, and that was a big meta-analysis of, um, of data available in, in the Netherlands and Europe and the USA, and it looked like about you know 10% of those women who found themselves without children at midlife had chosen that. My senses from the, the conversations I'm having, the people I'm meeting, uh, the statistics I'm looking at, is that is going to go up. I think a lot more of Gen Z are going to choose not to have children. And that's a, you know, that's a different journey too, because that's always made out to be a kind of bells and whistles, happy choice. Not always, has its own complexities. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, have you got any advice for people who are mm. at the end of their trying to conceive journeys now? We, I guess we, a lot of people that we speak to are... Mm thinking about stopping trying and and the thought yeah. of it like you mentioned earlier they'll go, they'll try yeah. everything because they don't want to feel like they've given up they want to have tried everything mm-hmm. that they can um have you got anything any advice that can that can make that feel a little less overwhelming for people or any any advice for them to to take forward i know personally that mm-hmm. um, the times when i've been very close to to stopping um the the idea of not trying anymore the idea mm. of being just letting that in as an option alongside trying this treatment or looking into mm. adoption whatever it may be having that as an option just made it feel a little a little easier um mm. but yeah have you got any any top tips or advice for these these women yeah i think it can be a very scary time because as well as um you know, thinking about what you're potentially giving up, um, you know, the opportunity to become a mother, also the experience of going through treatment and perhaps being part of a TTC community um, or, you know, getting pregnant, you know, trying to conceive again after baby loss, that in its way can become your identity. Mm-hmm. You know, you can become so wrapped up in that whole experience necessarily that you're not just giving up the idea of a baby, you're kind of giving up the whole structure of your, of your daily life and the type of people that you're spending, that what you're doing with your time. So it's actually a huge identity shift 
So actually, even the idea of giving up, giving up brings up grief because you're sort of giving up. Well, who will I be without this, Mm. without my journey, without all of the women I'm spending with, without saving all my money for IVF, without constructing my whole life around the calendar of treatments? Who, Who will I be? That in itself is already a grieving process. And I think we can perhaps stay on the TTC roller coaster, not realizing that actually it's really scary, the idea of getting off it, because you don't know who who you'll be. You know, how will my relationship survive that? Who will my partner and I be? How will we be as a couple if we're not a couple who are trying to conceive? What's left for us? You know? Mm. And and that's even without thinking about what's left of our intimate life which may have been taken a huge hit. Um, I, just a, an anecdote from me, I, I, I knew that when I was never, when I definitely knew I was never going to be having a baby, um, I, at that time I was single, but I stopped dating because I thought, well, what do I, what am I looking for in a male partner if it's not to be the father of my children? Mm. And I realized I didn't know. And I thought, I think it's a really good idea that I don't do any dating until I know the answer yeah. to that question. Mm. You know, it was a long time. It was several years. Um, so I think be super gentle with yourself and recognize the complexities, not just the binary of trying or not trying, that you're mm. giving up a whole way of life and perhaps a whole community and a whole identity that is focused on this outcome and that you may not have given any thought to what your life could be without children. It may just be that actually I know that I didn't want to think about that because it felt like I would be nixing my chances of getting pregnant. I only allowed myself to think about this eventual place I'd get to that would be motherhood. I put no thought or planning into a life that didn't involve children. So of course it was a terrifying void. Mm. But Mm. then it's like, well, you know, when I was a young woman and I thought about the life ahead of me, you know, the 30 years ahead of me from 20 to 50. I thought, well, there's loads I can do with that. You know, and with the vanity and egotism and ignorance of youth, I thought, well, I can do anything. I'll just do it and it'll happen, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So when I was like, you know, 45 and, you know, coming to terms with the fact I was definitely never going to be a mum, it was like, well, why can't the years from 45 to 75 be like that? Mm. And just having that thought, the idea that, I could have new dreams for my life. And speaking as someone who is a long time past that now, you know, I'm nearly 60, is I think the really important thing to know. (laughs) Thank you. Is that your life without children can be as meaningful and fulfilling as your life with children. It's just a different life. It's not a lesser life. It's not a second class life. It's not the booby prize. It can Mm. be just as Jodie. Jodie's life without children is a messy, imperfect human experience. Jodie's life with children would have been a messy, imperfect human experience. They are equally of value. They're just different. But society isn't telling us that. So you're not even perhaps even having that thought in your head. There is a good life for Mm. you out there without children. You will need to grieve the life that you had hoped for. That's what my book will take you through. It's called Living the Life Unexpected. And there's also, when you're ready, um, there's also a wonderful community. Um, You can find it on the Gateway Women website. It's now called Lighthouse Women. You can find a link to it on my website. 
There is a wonderful community. And within our community, we also have a subgroup for those who are childless after infertility and baby loss, because in a way that's another level of experience. And it can be really helpful to be mentored by women who have, who have come to childlessness that way. Um, and uh, probably we already have some of, some of your ex-members. It's probably already in there. We do get uh, Fertility Friends is another one that refers to us a lot as well. Um, so there is a soft landing out there for you, even though it doesn't feel like it right now. I think one thing as well that has really helped me in other ways is um, when we think about the future, it's so overwhelming because it's mm. indefinite and it's, you know, it's, it's more than our minds can take, isn't it? You can't, you can't think about the end. You can't think about the rest of your life because it's, it doesn't, we, we don't have the capability to understand it properly. But that's why it seems overwhelming. And I think if you can... <clears throat> use things like like practicing mindfulness and gratitude to bring yourself back into your moment back into your day and split the chunks down like if you're finding it really challenging going from week to week then split down and, and really f- bring that focus inwards and say what am i doing right now what am i doing in myself right now and pulling it back to learn some breathing exercises and really focus inwards on where you are right now minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, it's not nearly as frightening as where am I going to be in two years time or what's Mm. going to happen when I'm 70. You know, all this stuff is so easy to catastrophize and to be really overwhelmed by. And I still get that now about Mm. the future. I find it so overwhelming when I'm not in a good place myself. Mm. Mm. If I can take that moment to center myself and think today, in this moment, right now, I can breathe and I can do the next right thing, I can do the next thing to help myself. That's sort of mm. a level of self-care that we all, I, in my opinion, need to be really, really, really familiar with to, mm. to help us pre- prevent us from being overwhelmed and becoming overwhelmed because that, that's, it's a slippery slope, isn't it, to become that way? It is. And I mean, there's a, in my book, I kind of give a list of grief work, things you can do to support yourself. And, and, you know, mindfulness and learning to pull oneself out of a catastrophe spiral is, mm. is, incredi- is incredibly helpful. I mean, sometimes mindfulness isn't what you need in that moment. Cause sometimes grief can be so in the moment and the moment can be so unbelievably painful that maybe what you need in that moment isn't to be in the moment. It might be distracting yourself at that point is good. We need like a real like portfolio of, yeah. of, of, of self-care tools, but also community. Bex calls it a toolbox. An emotional toolbox, yeah. Grief was never meant to be done alone. It is a social emotion. It is a form of love. Um, it needs the other. We need to see ourselves reflected back in the eyes of another. That can happen online. That can happen with a, a skilled therapist. It can happen with a group. It's just that sense of, I think, that disenfranchised grief, which is the grief of infertility and the grief of childlessness, the form of grief that's not allowed to be spoken about, not allowed to be in social connection. In many ways, if we think of it as a form of love, it's almost like um, unrequited love, which is so Mm. painful. Grief heals in connection. It doesn't heal on your own, in a room, in your journal. You need Mm. others. And thanks to the internet, we can find those others and we can heal. Mm. Yeah. Your community is is global, isn't it, Jodie? You have people from all over the world. Yes, yeah. Fabulous. 
Yes. And we have sort of, you know, almost weekly events and we have loads of subgroups. You know, we have a thriving subgroup for, you know, for, for single members, unpartnered members, partnered members, um, women of color, women who've experienced baby loss, women who are living with chronic illness. I mean, we've got a list of like nearly 40 groups. And also we the members, we also have sort of meetups around the world for all our members as well. So you can actually get to know people in your, you know, in your life, in your locality as well. Through, you know, through the group, through the community, which is so important because one of the big issues of childlessness is it decimates your friendship group. Um, you know, when, when your friends and your family all move on to motherhood and leave you behind, it can be exquisitely painful. You need, if you're going to keep up with some of your old friends, you need new friends as well who totally get why sometimes keeping up with your old friends is doing your head in. <laughs> so, um, and, um, so it's, it's a friendship group. It's a support group. It's an information group. It's an empowerment group. It's, it's changed my life. It's changed the life of 10,000 women over the last decade. So Amazing. You know, very proud of it. Yeah. So you can find that on gateway-women.com and just go to um, join the community and you'll find all the information there. You can also download for free the first chapter of my book if you want to you want to have a look until you, it can be a hard book to read. It, it can be quite confronting, not because the book is hard to read, but for many women, they felt that reading this book is really admitting to themselves that they are childless. So sometimes reading my book is also in a way, the beginning of going, yes, this is my story. A lot of women who are trying to conceive, read it just so that they know, okay, it is there, you know, this yeah. is what I might have to go through in the future. So, so it feels maybe less scary. That if this doesn't work out, you know, Jodie's book is there. Jodie's community is there, you know, and the role models uh, of women like her can show me that, you know, a childless life can be a happy and meaningful life too. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, yeah, it's just been fascinating to speak to you. So articulate and, and yeah, what a wonderful message. Thank you so much, Jodie. Thank you both for your work as well and, and the beautiful communities and books that you've, you know, you've written um, I've only heard beautiful things about them. And now I've met you, I understand why. <laughs> Thanks so much. You're very welcome. All right. Um, keep in touch and um, wish you all the best with the recording of the audio book. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.